Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. The Guardian. Keir Starmer has faced many challenges in his first year as Labour leader, but he hasn't been tested at the ballot box. On May the 6th, that will change. I'm Raphael Baer, columnist for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Since the historic victory of 1945, there have only been three Labour winners. I want to be the fourth. On April the 4th last year, Sir Keir Rodney Starmer comfortably won the election to succeed Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. But that, it turns out, was the easy bit. How would he unite a party that had spent the previous five years in bitter factional feuding? How would he introduce himself to a country that had just delivered Labour its lowest tally of MPs in an election since 1935? What would be his mission? And how could he get Labour's lost voters to listen? Those were tough enough problems even before the UK was plunged into an epoch-defining public health emergency. And that didn't leave much political bandwidth for the opposition. So how's it going? Labour opinion is divided. Wider public opinion has been up and down. A little more down in recent months. But that's just opinion polls. In May, voters will have a say in local and devolved elections and a critical by-election in Hartlepool. But it isn't just the Tories hoping to capitalise on Labour's ongoing difficulty. The Green Party sees an opportunity to pounce and pick up a few council seats. Peter Walker explores that later on in the show. Meanwhile, Brexit. It still isn't done. Three months after the UK-Brussels trade deal came into effect, Lisa O'Carroll speaks to the EU ambassador to the UK about the Northern Ireland Protocol, unilateralism, and what vaccine he ended up getting. That's all coming up in this week's Politics Weekly. At first, regular listeners might be surprised to find me in the host's chair, but both Heather and Jessica are off this week, so I'm very gladly stepping in. Now, there wasn't a big party to celebrate Keir Starmer's first year as Labour leader. That sort of thing isn't allowed these days, but even without social distancing rules, there isn't a very festive mood around the party as it faces its first big electoral test since December 2019. And if that doesn't go well, people will increasingly wonder, what is the point of Keir Starmer? To help answer that and other questions, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Gabby Hinsliff. Gabby, nice to have you on the podcast. How are you? It's nice to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Now, let's get straight down to business. Back in January, you wrote a piece about Keir Starmer where you pointed out that his decency and competence or the impression of decency and competence that he gave uh, had been quite effective, but probably weren't enough, especially not if Boris Johnson managed to turn around his own reputation for incompetent handling of the pandemic. And he kind of seems to have pulled that off with a vaccine rollout. So, how stuck is Keir Starmer now facing a government on the bounce? 
Boris Johnson is a lucky general, you have to say. I mean, after the early fairly horrendous mistakes in handling the pandemic. He's been sort of saved by the vaccine, saved by scientists, saved by, to be honest, things um, largely beyond his control. And that has put Starmer in a a very awkward position. I mean, so long as the prime minister was screwing up and screwing up on something that, you know, consumed everything, there was no other politics for a year, pretty much. So we focused in a way that we don't normally focus on, on leadership rather than on the issues. You're looking at not on a party's ideological stance on issues of the day, but you were looking at leadership. Who do you trust of these two men to, you know, look after you and your family? Who do you think cares? Who do you think takes the threat seriously? Who do you think knows what they're doing on a day-to-day basis? The most dedicated Johnson supporter in the world couldn't say that, you know, Johnson's strengths were competence and caring and, you know, taking things enormously seriously. So by contrast... Starmer look good. And, you know, that's what we saw. That was largely what was driving Labour's rise in the polls. You know, we had a very clear change with the Corbyn regime. And, you know, you saw people dissatisfied with their current prime minister looking for an alternative. But that's not happening anymore. And just not being in the same way that not being Corbyn is not in itself enough. Not being Boris Johnson is not in itself enough. You know, you're now at the stage where people are going, okay, well, we know who you're not. What are you exactly? There are two elements to this, aren't there? So it's always hard in a in a crisis where the opposition are sort of expected to sort of row in behind the national effort and, and somehow support the government. Um, and obviously, a lot of the opposition supporters don't want them to be supporting the government. They want them to be opposing. Uh, and that opens up this broader challenge that I think Labour have in particular, which is you have to sort of keep your activist base excited and energized and they like radical ideas and a lot of them are Corbyn supporters and like radical left ideas. And you also got to reach out to target voters who are more skeptical of that radicalism and, you know, for want of a better word, are basically a bit more conservative in their worldview. And that's just a, a really difficult tightrope walk. Uh, so how do you feel Starmer is, is, is performing on, on that exercise? It's a bit wobbly in tightrope terms, isn't it? That's the trouble. I mean, the pandemic, as you say, has been hard, but almost the post-pandemic phase is harder because that's when other issues begin to re-enter. You know, domestic politics begins to re-enter the fray. And on that, you know, on most of the sort of big domestic issues, those two sides of the Labour Party are much more dramatically opposed than they were on pandemic handling. I mean, broadly, yes, there might have been arguments about how much you should be attacking the government versus how much you you shouldn't. But, you know, there was broad consensus probably within the Labour Party about the right way to deal with COVID. There is absolutely not broad consensus about how to deal with some of the other issues now arising. And that's where it gets difficult. You know, he's developed a bit of a reputation for sitting on the fence, for abstaining rather than opposing in Parliament, for flip-flopping one way on the other for for indicating to some one group of people that he's here and, and to another that he's there, you know, and, and that contributes to the sort of sense of ambiguity or, or lack of clarity about what he stands for, which comes through in focus groups all the time. You know, they're not quite sure who he is. They're not quite sure where he's going. And the trouble is, any choice he makes is going to offend someone within the party. And there's a point as a new leader where you have the authority to do that. You know, when you're a head When you're winning, everything's easy. When you're ahead in the polls, you have the authority to say, actually, I know this is going to annoy half the party, but we're doing this and you've fallen behind me because look, it's working. The minute it stops looking like it's working, you know, you start sliding backwards in the polls. You no longer have the authority to do that. And it gets harder to make the choices that you have to make. 
I wonder if there's a, an extent to which Starmer squandered the the moment of maximum opportunity to really define himself with regard to his predecessor, which was immediately after having won. He could perhaps have said, right, we've got to properly move on from that whole Corbyn thing. A lot of things went badly wrong then. But that wasn't the campaign that he fought for the leadership, was it? He sort of pledged a bit of continuity. He didn't repudiate Corbyn then. He sort of there was then bounced into a bit of repudiation later. He sacked Rebecca Long Bailey. Jeremy Corbyn is no longer technically a Labour MP, doesn't take the whip anymore. Um, but I wonder, what's your sense of, of whether that's something he needs to still do to actually say, to, to give definition to a Starmer project in, in confrontation, frankly, with what the Corbyn project was to signal to voters that it really is under new management? Yeah, I mean, when you say a bit of repudiation, I mean, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's no longer a Labour MP, that, that's quite a lot of repudiation, to be fair. <laughs> but it wasn't something, you know, in a sense, it wasn't something, it was something he chose to do, but it, it was Corbyn who manoeuvred himself, put himself in a position where, you know, the leader was was forced to choose. So some voters might still think, well, I'm still unsure, you know, what you what you intended by that. I think the problem is more that he signalled that he's moved on from you know, the Corbyn era, but it's not clear that we've moved on what what we've moved on to, because there was a large part of the Labour membership that voted for him thinking, you know, we liked a lot of the Corbyn policies, but we accept that Corbyn himself was was anathema to large parts of the electorate. So what we want is someone is a better Jeremy. We want someone who confront those policies in a more convincing way that sells them to people who didn't get it beforehand. And he never said anything during the leadership campaign that would have shaken that faith, you know, that would have made you think that wasn't what he intended. And then you have a situation where he becomes leader and, and suddenly you know, it's clear what, to be honest, should have been clear all along to anyone who'd looked at Stormer's record, which is that you're not getting a better Jeremy here. You're you're getting a different person with different ideas of their own and someone who is going to move away in policy terms from the Corbyn legacy. And that was, that was always the problem of the campaign he fought. You can't be a unifying candidate of a party that has fundamental ideological differences and factions that are implacably opposed to each other. You know, it is not clear how you bring those two together without displeasing one side or the other. And I think one of his faults is that he finds it difficult to, con- I think, to confront people head on. And there is going to have to be a fair bit of head on confrontation. Right. And the point on which he basically did sack Rebecca Long Bailey and take the whip away from Jeremy Corbyn was was this relatively discreet issue of anti-Semitism where you know, pretty much no one thinks the Labour Party should be anti-Semitic. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of micro arguments you can have around the, the handling of that issue and the definitions of it. But basically, that's quite separate to this much broader issue of, you know, as you say, something as big as economic policy, whether the Labour Party is that even, you know, for or against capitalism. I mean, huge issues. And then meanwhile, you have, you know, a, a Conservative Party that's ripped up its own basic economic orthodoxies. Rishi Sunak, I mean, he's a Thatcherite at heart, but with a furlough scheme, with the, the debt and the borrowing, he's basically you know, parked a fiscal tank right on terrain that would have once been belonged entirely to Labour. So th- there's, there's two different ways in which the leader of the Labour Party can't really get a, a definition for himself on, on very substantial issues of how political economy should work. His challenge is going to be to remove those tanks from the lawn because I don't think you're going to sort of transform overnight um, necessarily what, you know, Labour's, Labour wins in that space where it's seen as being uh, the champion and defender of public services at a time when 
public opinion is for public spending. You know, it's ticked that second box at the moment, which the Tories have responded to by saying, OK, we're the party of public services now. You know, we're the party that spends money and it horrifies their own back benches. But they know that is where they need to be politically. That should be Labour's turf. And if you look at the actual facts going forward, if you look at the projections we had in the last budget, you know, there is a rhetoric about spending money and a reality that says something different. There will be money spent on big infrastructure projects. You know, there's almost nowhere left that Boris Johnson can't want, doesn't want to build a bridge to. But you can see shrinking budgets going forward for capital spending. So Labour needs to be in a position of saying, the Tories are all talk, no action. They're not going to do, you know, they talk about how much they've changed, but it's not true. You know, in reality, we're the only people you can trust. But they're not even in the foothills of beginning to make that argument. And if we are working on the assumption, as Labour seems to be doing, that it's not going to be a 2024 election, it's going to be 2023, actually something that seemed, you know, very far off in the distance, if you assume that a 2023 election, the campaign for it really begins in 2022, you know, hang on a minute, he's running out of time already. Right. Well, Boris Johnson has swerved away from at least the rhetoric of austerity, but not because he's a sudden convert to Keynesian economics, but because he had this contract with Brexit voters in former Labour seats uh, and he's delivered them something called Brexit, uh, but they'll want more. And his mission now is basically to try and hose that electorate down with enough money uh, that they feel the contract has been honoured. Uh, now, for Labour, that is an ongoing problem, isn't it? That the, this, the fact that these voters that they had taken for granted for a long time are now Johnson voters. Is Brexit still something that is going to haunt Keir Starmer? I mean, he was very associated with the calls for a second referendum. He's very so he's got a he's a liberal lawyer in a Islington seat. Uh, is that just a structural obstacle to rebuilding what we've come to know of as the Red Wall? On Brexit, I think the best he can hope for really is that time heals and everyone moves on. It's very much a lawyer's gambit, I think, of, you know, you fight the case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And then when the Supreme Court rules against you, which was essentially what the 2019 general election did, you accept the judgment and you move on. You've lost. But you're not... There's a whole culture associated. Brexit is not just about Europe. You know, there is a culture associated with Brexit voters that, yes, has views on Europe and, yes, has views on immigrants, but also has views on all sorts of other things, also has views on patriotism, also has views on the use of the flag, also has views on criminal justice, also has views probably on a whole load of cultural issues, although this is overplayed, I think, a lot of the time, but does have views on cultural issues like gay rights or whatever it is, you know, so, and feminism having gone too far and so on. So there's a group of views associated with Brexit voters and with Red Wall voters. That is also something that he has to grapple with. Right. That's really interesting, that observation, I think, about his loyally approach to this issue, that, you know, as it were, the Supreme Court of the electorate delivered their verdict. And so it was time to concede, because exactly as you've just said, that, that doesn't really grasp the extent to which the Brexit thing burrowed its way into the core of people's identities. And you described that with relation to Brexit voters, but I think that's also true of a lot of Remain voters. I wonder to what extent Keir Starmer has a kind of lack of emotional literacy around the more cultural side of politics. There was a very interesting moment. You mentioned patriotism and the flag. Uh, at the end of last year, The Guardian had this leaked strategy document uh, that said, uh, that advised the Labour Party to take a more consciously patriotic tone. And that was met with, I think, what could best be described as scepticism on the left. But 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 if if the opposition basically has an ambivalent relationship with, with, it, with its national flag, 
that's a real problem, isn't it? I mean, that's a problem that goes beyond just not knowing what economic policy to have. Is, is Starmer, as I say, is he literate in, in expressing these things and in a way that can basically carry the party with him? I think if an opposition has, you know, an ambivalent or negative relationship to the national flag, that's a huge problem for a law, very large group of voters. If it has a sort of extremely positive or fawning relationships and national flag, that's a problem for a smaller group of voters, but one that's very heavily concentrated in the Labour Party. So once again, it's one of those situations where for Starmer, where you can't please everyone. And actually, in those circumstances, you just have to go with what you really feel and what you really think. It needs to, you know, convey to voters that it's patriotic and that it, you know, and that it it believes in Britain and it loves the country it wants to represent, because otherwise, why would you trust it to, to represent that country and govern that country? But it simultaneously has to, I think, pick away at the Tories co-opting of the flag and and at that sort of patriotism that's very prominently expressed by Tory cabinet ministers every time. You know, literally, we're almost at the point now where everyone, Tory cabinet minister, has to appear in public wearing Union Jack underpants over their trousers and singing Rule Britannia. But you can't hammer away at that without saying that that patriotism is fake too, without saying, well, okay, you love the country so much. How come you let 130,000 people die and you're letting public services be run down to the bone? And how much, you know, patriotism is not just about gestures. It's about serving your country uh, to the best of your abilities. And if you're not doing that, you don't have the right to to use the paraphernalia. It it all suggests then that Boris Johnson doesn't really have much to be afraid of when it comes to Keir Starmer's Labour Party. If you were advising Downing Street now, is that what you would be saying, Gabby? Do you think you'd be thinking, yeah, you've probably got another term before this Labour Party gets its act together? I don't know that I would, actually. I mean, I think that might be the most likely result, but I think they should be taking a Starmer Labour Party a lot more seriously than a Corbyn Labour Party. And I think they should also recognise, when did Starmer do well? Bluntly, when Boris Johnson cocked up. If you think that's never going to happen again, then Starmer is not a problem. On the other hand, if you think, I'm just putting that out there, that um, Boris Johnson is capable of screwing up in some ginormous way um, again before the end of this parliament, then you would do well to take your opponent seriously. I think you also need to consider, the Tory party needs to think back to one of the reasons that the last Labour government died on its feet and it's that sense that it become tired, it had become, you know, prone to all sorts of scandals, it had run out of ideas, it had run out of new thinking, it didn't have anything much left to offer. Sort of corruption scandals that are starting to swirl around this government now reminds you that it may be a new government, but, you know, it's been a long stretch of Tory rule and there's that slight exhaustion that sets in, even when you keep changing leaders as regularly as the Tories have over the last few years. You run out of steam, you run out of good people, and that can kill off a government in the end as much as the strength of its opposition. For anyone who wants to hear more about the direction the Labour Party uh, has taken under Keir Starmer, I strongly recommend you listen to Monday's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, because Heather Stewart makes some predictions there, along with Anushka Astana. And there'll be a link to that episode in today's show notes. Uh, but meanwhile, it just remains for me to say, Gabby Hinsliff, thank you very much for your wisdom and insight as ever. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. After the break, we look at how the Green Party is hoping to capitalise on a fall in form for the Labour Party. And Lisa O'Carroll speaks to the EU's ambassador to the UK. We'll be right back. Yeah. 
Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Raphael Baer. Now, local and devolved elections are fast approaching. Normally, you'd expect the main opposition party to enjoy a midterm boost against the incumbent party of government. But these aren't normal times. And, as we heard a moment ago, Keir Starmer's bandwagon has stalled. Labour's loss would be someone else's gain. But whose? Green councillors in the north of England are mobilising, hoping to pick up seats from voters on the left whose affections for the Labour Party are under strain. Again. My colleague Peter Walker spoke to a couple of those hopeful green councillors to get some insight. So one of the groups most likely to look to the Green Party for inspiration are young people. Uh, I decided to chat to Kai Taylor, a Green Councillor for Knowsley Council in Merseyside. I was pretty shocked when I found out he was only 20 when he first won his seat. But despite a busy schedule as both a councillor and as election coordinator for the National Party, Kai is actually attempting to write a dissertation in the middle of what's going to be a very tough local campaign. Surprisingly though, he didn't even start off as a Green like a lot of Green Party members, I was originally in the Labour Party and um, this was back in, in 2015-16. I didn't particularly like the direction that I could see the way the Labour Party was heading. They seemed to be more focused on the battles that they had to have internally as opposed to you know taking the fight to the Conservative government and felt like the Green Party offered a more progressive outlook, offered a more kind of radical idea of how we can promote change and we can promote sustainability and I think for me it just felt like the Green Party were, were in a better position to start the kind of taking the fight to the government uh, whilst the Labour Party seems to be more concerned with fighting amongst themselves. What's it been like to kind of start from scratch virtually in such a kind of strongly Labour area? Because I'm right in thinking that Nosley is kind of Harold Wilson's former area. Has it been quite a kind of battle? Have you found people reasonably open to what you're trying to do? Like a lot of areas, particularly in the north, you know, like the red wall seats, I think for so long they were just kind of taken for granted as safe Labour voters. And as a result of this, you know, in these areas, Labour kind of forget how to campaign. And even though this is an area with very, very typical Labour voters and what you assume would be a Labour stronghold, um, we found people to be really keen to have those conversations with us and really keen to learn more about what the Green Party stands for. And I think if one thing that the party's been really clear to put out is that, you know, there is no environmental justice without social justice. And I think that is resonating a lot more in working class communities like in Nosley, uh, you know, like in Burnley, like in South Yorkshire, places where we're really feeling like we can do well. Uh, we're really keen to keep getting that message across to voters and keep kind of, you know, making the case for those 
somewhat radical ideas that we have in terms of how we how we create a, a more equal and more fair society. And in the local elections in May, what would count as a kind of good result? Well, in 2019, when we had the district and borough councils up for election, we made 192 gains. This year's elections are going to be slightly different because we're fighting county council elections, which are often um, quite big awards, therefore a little bit more difficult to win. Uh, We're currently on about 362 councillors across England and Wales, and and we're quite confident that we'll, we'll take that number above 400 by May. I mean, one of the things that smaller parties, and particularly the Greens, seem to find is that your local campaigning can win you council seats. But the bigger the area it is, the more the first past the post plays against you. And you you, you have said, I'm right in thinking, you stood in the general election in 2019. And that's something that the Greens have traditionally found very difficult. You know, if you've still only got one uh, MP. Is that a bit of a worry that people will take you seriously at local level, but when it gets to more national level, they just revert back to the big parties? I think that's certainly a concern for a lot of Green Party campaigners and, and, and Green Party activists. I think the the, the, the way that we see it is that, you know, through local elections, through having councillors elected, we build credibility and, and that credibility kind of follows us into general elections. So there's 18 different councils now across England and Wales that have green councillors in administration. You know, we've got places like Brighton and Hove, which are now run by the Green Party. The key task over the next couple of years leading up to the 2024 general election is to make sure that we continue to build on our credibility so that we pose a, a clear alternative to a lot of voters that will be politically homeless and, and won't be wanting to vote for the Labour Party or the Conservative Party and, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, make that case that, that we're the genuine alternative for those voters. Now let's look at Burnley. I spoke to Andy Fewings, a Green councillor, who because of the fairly convoluted way council elections are run, isn't up for election in the town this year, but he is running for Lancashire County Council. Andy first decided to throw his hat into the ring when he moved to Burnley in 2014 and couldn't find a party he thought spoke for his values. In the 2019 general election, Burnley turned Conservative, making him think that maybe the Greens can capitalise on a breakdown of Labour domination. Nationally, as we go into these elections, they're they're mostly county seats, so we are standing against a lot of Conservatives and we do win against Conservatives as well. But in terms of the Labour Party, and, uh, and Burnley itself, you know, actually in 2010, they lost the seat to the Liberal Democrats. And in 2019, they lost the seat to the Conservatives. And I think people have stopped voting for Labour out of habit. Therefore, it makes them think about how they're going to vote. And when they do that, they find that, you know, a lot of the things that they hear about Labour nationally are not reflected in the behaviour of the local Labour Party. Is it perhaps also that, you know, what a scene maybe from a London journalist view is northern towns are actually not quite, you know, what the stereotype would indicate? Because am I right in thinking your husband runs a vegan uh, cafe? Is that, uh, is that, is that, is that, is that right? Is, is Burnley perhaps a bit more varied and mixed than, than, you know, some people might think? Absolutely. I think, you know, I think stereotypes are, are what they are. You know, it's very easy to assume that there there are no people that care about the environment in, in Burnley because it's, a, you know, a deprived northern town and, and go with that stereotype. But actually, you know, at the end of the day, people are becoming more conscious of their choices, but also are, are looking at politicians and saying, well, why are we in this situation where the, the climate emergency is so imminent? What, what have you been doing all this time? There is essentially a big gap because there is no one really 
listening to local residents and taking their concerns on board. That is the space that is meant to be filled by the Labour Party. But you can only go so many decades where the promises don't turn into results uh, and and people start looking for alternatives. And I think that, you know, uh, people have noticed. And I obviously realise that the Greens offering has gone a long way in recent years beyond the kind of environmental concerns that people always used to associate with you. But obviously, these climate emergencies can be in the news an awful lot this year because Glasgow is hosting the COP26 uh, summit later in the year. How much do you think factors like that play in the kind of elections you're taking part in? And on a personal level, do you trust the government to stick by the commitments they're going to be taking into COP26? I mean, yeah, so I think they will have a a huge factor in in the elections coming up and this year and also over the next decade, really, because we are at that crunch point. What we know from the Conservatives is that they underdeliver, they overpromise and underdeliver, and they're overpromising on these issues, um, fall short of what we need. Um, so we're already in a in a in a in a sticky situation before we've even begun. The Guardian's Peter Walker reporting there. Now, as has often been mentioned on this podcast, relations between the UK and the EU are not exactly great. Maybe that was inevitable, given the messy Brexit breakup, but throw in a nasty vaccine dispute and trust on both sides has fallen to an all-time low. In the middle of these rows sits Northern Ireland, part of the UK stuck dealing with the fallout from decisions made about it from the outside. Over the past week, we've seen pockets of violence break out in loyalist areas. The First Minister, Arlene Foster, has argued it's due to the decision not to charge Sinn Féin members for breaking Covid restrictions when they attended the funeral of Republican Bobby Storey. Northern Ireland's Justice Minister, Naomi Long, has said the government's dishonesty over the consequences of a hard Brexit has contributed to the anger felt by loyalists. Whatever the reason, the sight of petrol bombs and cars ablaze in Northern Ireland brings back memories of much darker times and raises anxiety about the future. It seems like the right time to talk to Joao Vallejo-Almeida, the first post-Brexit EU ambassador to the UK, who took up the role at the start of February last year, not knowing that Brexit wouldn't be the only crisis to contend with. The Guardian's Brexit correspondent Lisa O'Carroll met the ambassador for the first time last January as he was being introduced to the British press in Westminster. They then caught up again on Monday. Just to start, we should go back to the beginning. Back in January 2020, we were all told that you were going to be the EU's new ambassador to London. But I'm not sure if I can call you this. Um, the UK refuses to recognise your diplomatic status. Is that correct? No, you certainly can call me ambassador. No problem with that. You can call me João as well. That's that's fine as well. <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I am the EU ambassador. We're just, uh, you know, concluding uh, discussions with the UK government to to establish the the full diplomatic status but that doesn't prevent me from from fully representing the European Union and that, that's what I've been doing it's been quite a, quite a hectic year huh? quite a busy year and um, it's always good to look back but it's also important to 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 look look ahead and look forward and and I think the UK and the EU and our 27 member states uh, there's a lot for us to do just a little look back on the year, the pandemic has impacted everybody's way of work and way of living. And one thing we've got very, very used to is having meetings in parks. Where have you been in London and who have you met? Have you met Boris Johnson? Have you met Dominic Raab? Have you met Michael Gove? 
I, I did I did meet Michael Go several times. I met a few other ministers. I haven't met uh, the prime minister or the, the foreign secretary yet. And uh, and I, I even travel around the country. I went to Northern Ireland. I went to Wales. I had a, a virtual visit to Scotland. This quite, was quite a special year. Uh, but still, uh, if we focus on on the essence of things, I would say. Uh, I think we have to, to, you know, take stock of the fact that we have a new kind of relationship, and that we have to do uh, to, to to make the most out of it, and uh, and that's the focus that um, uh, that I'm taking and my team. But also, I would say, uh, I hope that um, the next 12 months will be better from that point of view. You mentioned there that you have been to Northern Ireland. Now, Northern Ireland, as you know, has been an incredible cause of tension in the Brexit relationship, um, which is also threatening the relationship in the UK. We've had five nights of violence, disruption in Northern Ireland. I can see from the police statements over the weekend that we're talking small loyalist gatherings in certain communities. It's not widespread, but I wouldn't underestimate its significance in that many people, including people in the EU and in, in Ireland, who some of whom you may know, talk about how unstable Northern Ireland has been. What is your view of what's happened over the last three months? When British people voted for Brexit and the, and the British government opted for a, a, a simultaneous departure from, uh, from the single market and from the customs union, we all knew that Northern Ireland would be the most intricate issue to, to solve. The result of that is the uh, island, Northern Ireland, protocol attached to the withdrawal agreement. And um, it took a few years to negotiate. I can guarantee you from listening to those who negotiated uh, that uh, they turn every stone uh, to try to find alternatives to this protocol. No one came with a better idea. Even those who uh, attack the protocol today uh, would like to see it scrapped, have no alternative to the protocol. And we agreed between us and, and, and our British friends, those measures in December. Well, the fact is that they have not yet been fully implemented by, by the authorities. And that's where we should start, in our view, is to implement what we have agreed. And once we've done that, and that once we've shown commitment to do that and action to, uh, to translate that into practical terms, then we can look at other possible measures of flexibility in order to address the problem. So uh, the protocol is not the problem. The protocol is the solution for the problems created by, by Brexit. I think everybody is very, everybody who's followed this, followed this and um, I've been following it for four and a half, five years, yeah. is aware of the EU's sense of, very deep sense of duty of care to the, to the people of Northern Ireland. It was the EU way more than the UK which spoke so passionately about the fragility of peace, about the need to protect the peace process, etc. But I would like to ask you whether the EU actually misjudged the impact of implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol in its entirety, bar a few grace periods for supermarkets, parcels, medicines, on the 1st of January. And would it not have been better had the EU, perhaps even unilaterally, given a grace period for the whole implementation and have a transition period. I do understand the sensitivity and we've been very, very much open and very much flexible to that. But let's not forget the origin of the issues, right? Uh, we are talking about the, the impact of Brexit. We are talking about the impact of the departure from the single market, which was decided on the British side 
uh, as well. Uh, so decisions have consequences. Uh, the British government decided to take unilateral action. Unilateral decisions are no solutions for these problems. The problems must be found together. That's why we created a number of bodies where we sit down together with our British friends. But they, they chose to uh, to walk out of, of those bodies and, and to take unilateral action, which is not good. This being said, we have had to take uh, legal action, as you know. We received uh, some uh, lists of measures that uh, the UK authorities intend to implement. We had asked for a roadmap. We are not assessing those uh, measures to see how we, can, uh, how we can move forward. So things have changed and people need to adapt. But also in some other areas, things will never be the same as they were before. I see in the, in the deal, in the agreement, the potential for deep and wide and a very dynamic relationship between the EU and the UK. Uh, we should all focus in making the most out of this agreement. To move to um, the vaccine, I hear uh, you've been back in Brussels and you've got your vaccine, is that correct? Yeah, I'm waiting for my second jab, yes. What did you have? Uh, Pfizer. Pfizer. Did you have a choice? No, it was uh, under the Belgian system, the, you know, according to, I don't know whatever criteria they use, but I took the jab they gave me. And um, would you have taken the AstraZeneca one? I took the one I gave me. There was no, no, no decision on me to, to do that. The vaccine wars have been extraordinary, haven't they? But I suppose the big question that everybody's asking, just ordinary people and voters, is when will the EU catch up with the UK? Well, I will hope, uh, first of all, I don't think we should make this a beauty contest. I think it's even immoral to, uh, you know, hold a, a beauty contest on the, on the back of a tragedy and the, and the, and the pandemics like this one. So we, we are not in the business of seeing who's doing better or not. I think everybody uh, needs to get it done because you are only safe if your neighbor is safe. So uh, the success on one side of the border is the success for the other side of the border. Our hope is to, is still to have achieve our goal by, by, by the end of summer. Some people say that maybe even before that, let's see, I hope the sooner the better, of course. And, uh, and we remain confident that we can, uh, we can uh, speed up vaccinations in the second quarter as compared to the first quarter. And let's hope that both the UK and the EU achieve their goals and, uh, and life will be better after summer. And then, of course, the, the big question will be um, if the whole of Europe is vaccinated, what sort of um, intensification of um, sharing the vaccine around the world through COVAX? Have you any info on that? Well, we are we are the world's number one exporter of vaccines by far. The latest figures I have is that uh, we have exported uh, since the, the end of January up to now exported 68 million doses to 41 different destinations of which uh, around 11 million to, to the United Kingdom. And at the same time, we are delivering vaccines through the COVAX mechanisms to 92 low and middle income countries around the world. So our track record is uh, absolutely uh, top and we'll continue to do so because we believe this is our responsibility. Final question, have you booked a holiday yet? Portugal is definitely my home country, and this and this is where I, I intend to spend my holidays. Uh, but we haven't booked anything yet. I think we we need to be uh, to wait and see how things how things develop. 
but um, I, I do hope that we all can, including you, Lisa, and all our friends listening, all have uh, uh, some time to rest during holidays. I think our countries are doing a great job in trying to address this pandemic, but there's still a lot of effort. And I can tell you from the European Union side, this is our top priority right now. The Guardian's Lisa O'Carroll speaking to Joao Vallejo Almeida. And that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland speaks to Peter Weiner of the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in DC about the hypocrisy of the Christian right in the wake of the scandal surrounding Florida Congressman Matt Gates. Make sure to look out for that in the Politics Weekly feed wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Gabby Hinsliff, Lisa O'Carroll, Peter Walker, Joao Vallejo-Almeida, Kai Taylor and Andrew Fewings. The producer is Danielle Stevens and I'm Raphael Baer. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 